This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome. It's so great to have you in the living room. Great to be um, here. Thanks for having us. It's good to have you here. So, Dan, how did you get involved in journalism? Um, how did I get involved in journalism? It was a kind of a long winding road, but I ended up at USC's uh, Graduate School of Journalism where I was studying journalism and trying to get ahead. And, and I really kind of fell into uh, the subject matter that has carried me ever since then, all the way back then. So you actually started doing stuff on child welfare and foster care when you were in graduate school? Oh, at yeah. USC? I mean, that was the first thing. So I, so I had a uh, played lacrosse in high school and college, and I was refing lacrosse games to make extra money as a lowly graduate student. And I heard about this lacrosse team in South LA that was all black and Latino that lost every game, but did so very graciously. Yeah, so I thought they would be a great story. And you met somebody who had been in foster care. Yeah, I met a young man named Chris who, uh, you know, was, would get visibly upset easily, sewed down his helmet and stuff, and I asked him what was going on. I asked him, what do your parents say when you do that? And then he said, I don't have any parents. And uh, he took me down to his group home in South LA, and I talked to six boys. Um, all they talked about was their mothers and how their mothers were either in prison, dead, um, somehow not there. And I said, what the heck? You know, what can we and do about this? And fathers weren't even in the picture. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, they all, they, all wanted to, they all wanted to talk about their moms. And so that's what they were doing. Between jostling with each other, between trying to assert their little authority in their little group home. Um, and I just thought, I have a mother that loves me very dearly, um, dotes on me. And, and I thought, well, if, if, and look, at, look at how I'm fighting my way through life. How are these little guys going to make it through? So that's where it started my uh, passion for this stuff. So, Governor, as a, as a former governor, you, you had to deal with some of these issues. Oh my what God. are child welfare systems like in foster care systems in the states? And how do well, they look I mean, from it's so top? interesting. I have, a, I have a similar experience, you know, from a, a different perspective. So when I was the attorney general of Michigan, um, I started a mentoring program called, at the time, I was, it was in 1998, it was called 2000 for 2000, where we were going to try to recruit 2,000 mentors for 2,000 kids in the foster care system or kids who were really challenged or at risk, identified by the courts as kids who were going to fall out unless there was an intervention. And so I started to mentor this little girl, who her name is Brittany, and she was eight years old. And um, I, I still am with her to this day, but her mother was a crack addict. Um, her father was not in the picture. Her mother died while I was mentoring her, her father also died when I was mentoring her. She was put into the foster care system, um, and it was a disaster, and yet there were so many people inside of the foster care system who were redemptive, mm. you know, who really reached out to her and who wanted to embrace her, not just because I was involved, although I was really actively involved, but it really, when I was governor, that experience of seeing her in this foster care system was one of the reasons why I wanted to run for governor mm. because it was so clearly dysfunctional. She was in foster, when she was in a foster care home, it was a disaster. But anyway, seeing all of that. Um, so this is a system that's firsthand. not working that well. And that's what In a lot drove, of states. Yeah, yeah, in a lot of states. And that's what drove you to write articles. Well, I think, I think it is a system that's not working very well for kind of 
comprehensible reasons. But I think, moreover, it's a system that has been demonized by a press that is focused on child deaths when they pop up. I'm sure in Michigan, a kid, Absolutely. a child dies, the, Abs- the reporters drop in like vultures. Now, that's less than 1% of the experience of a child in the child welfare system, but that becomes what paints all the policy decisions and everything else. So I came to it with an understanding that the system is ailing and is under-resourced, but my impression was that a nuanced, solution-oriented depiction of the system would be helpful in that the kids, they're tainted by association with this quote-unquote broken system. That makes it harder for them to get adopted, makes it harder for a lot of things in their lives. People think, oh, you, you are in foster care, you're at a disadvantage. So my whole objective was to change the narrative, mm-hmm. not to change the narrative into something that's an advocacy position or anything else, but to just to make it more uh, nuanced and a holistic view of what the system Meaning is. Meaning portraying the, the kids and their individual stories. Uh, the kids, actually, I'm le- less interested in the children themselves than I am in the, the functionings of the system. So, so I, would, I like to look at places where there are uh, procedural or practical problems that, that, that make it impossible for kids to move forward. And sometimes a child will enter into that picture. But I don't like to rely too heavily on anecdotes. And so when I'm teaching here also, I, I, you know, while the anecdote is so, um, gets policy done, of course, and so attractive, it often obscures the real issue you're trying to get at. Mm-hmm. So it's a mixture of telling some of those individual stories, but really focusing on what the, the policy problems are. So I hear a critique of journalism, though, in what you've just said, that there's journalists too often drop in, deal with the anecdote and the messy situation that arises, but then leave behind no real solutions and no real ways to solve those problems. Yeah, I think that there's... a. Journalism is in a place that's not very attractive. I think that there's things that are changing. Uh, you were, you had a show on Current TV when Current TV was around. They were trying new things. I think that there's, there's people trying uh, new things all the time. But I think that this idea of objectivity as it's been trained, I mean, so there was, there's this idea of the inverted pyramid. We tell our stories, big stuff first and goes down. Historically, this comes from the advent of the telegraph. So then you're sending out messages. Most important thing happens first. Lincoln died. He was killed uh, in the theater. Seward was, was, uh, was attacked, right? So, this is, so you're going in, in order of importance. And then that was taught in the progressive schools where journalism was being taught into this new form of objectivity, which I think became a dogma that doesn't allow for the nuance that you need anymore. So I think that there's a... Nor is it really true, right? I mean, is, yeah. is there any objectivity? Really, there's not. Well, I think, yeah, I think you need to go into it with a... And I think that, that the journalists want to uh, admonish themselves of context. So they want to say, well, I'm not going in there with any opinions of mine, but you're never going to be effective if you don't have a compendium of information to draw from and a niche specialty. I mean, like any academic, it's the same thing. Um, so I think that there's an opportunity for journalists to be a little bit more honest with themselves, get a little bit more specialized, dive deeper, and paint uh, not only problems, but solutions. And not only solutions, because that's easy. That can, oh, we talk about a program, that's nice, and these one-off stories. But what are the institutional barriers to getting those solutions 
accomplished. And if you can tell that story, then you can move governors, then you can move uh, con congressmen, then you can move state assembly but makers. It sounds like you're becoming an advocate. How does this differ from just starting an advocacy group and saying we care about kids and we're going to talk about kids? Well, I, I mean, if we were advocates, I think we'd be creating research to bolster our opinions ourselves. So this is something we grap I grapple with all the time. Um, so you, I, I'd be compiling research that I could, that I could use to, to make my argument stronger. I could be um, doing a whole number of different press releases and all kinds of different things uh, to try to do that. And I think that there is a temptation to do that. But in the end, what... I can do and what other people engaged in solution-based journalism, which is now a kind of a spreading phenomenon. I remember talking about five years ago, nobody was talking about it. Now it's kind of all over the place. Um, what you can do as a, as a journalist that focuses on solutions is just look at the, just make sure you've got balance, you know, fair and balance, as our friends at Fox say, um, but have balance in terms of the solutions that are out there. Describe those and describe those institutional barriers that I want uh, dramatically better futures for American children, I'm not ashamed of saying, um, and I don't know whether that makes me an advocate per se. I've got a level so of Governor, expertise. So, Governor, how does that? I mean, how does that yeah, play I mean, with I, you in terms of thinking about journalists listen, out there? And if there is a journalist out there that is an, an expert in a certain field who has a compendium of knowledge that can write with with mm -hmm. intelligence about this, I am all about that. Um, you know, I've been on both sides of the. Yeah. Uh, of the storytelling on this. And when I was with Current TV, I was an unabashed advocate. I was clearly, I had a, an opinion. I didn't, you know, couch my opinion. It was very clear. That's sort of one side of the spectrum. Yours, yours is, uh, it's, a different, it's a different animal, uh, what you're talking about, where you've got an opinion about the problems out there. That is, it's not that controversial that there are some problems out there that need to be fixed. But what you're bringing is a depth of knowledge to enlighten people as to not just the, the solutions, but what are the impediments to getting those solutions, as you say. I think that there's also a big, a big question wherein how is journalism education going to move forward? I mean, across, across the street here at the, at the J School, are they teaching journalists content? You know, is the focus on content or skill? And I think that as we move forward, I think the focus has to be more on content. So you get more into this position because I think it's a, it would be a horrible shame if this fourth estate didn't really yeah. act in its act as a as a mover of policy. So back to your question, Dean Brady, about um, about this question of advocacy. The perception that you may be an advocate puts you at a disadvantage in conveying uh, information. It puts you at a disadvantage. People think you're coming at it with a point of view. So if that is the point of view, which has been dropped on me before because I care so much about child welfare issues, um, it just raises the burden of my fact-fighting so that I know that every point, to the degree possible, is aired whether or not I agree with it or not. So I think that it, it really raises the bar on it. And I think what you're saying is true. There are... Um, there are deep experts. There's great people doing great reporting, and I don't want to denigrate the whole field of journalism. I, I clearly love it, um, and I think it's got great promise. Um, I just, you don't have the New York Times in every city, and you don't have the kind of army of solution-based journalists out there that it will require to impel this country, for one, to reorganize uh, its priorities in a way that is more equitable, for well, example. Is there a market for this, though? I mean, are people, people love to 
read the story about man bites dog, right? And that's the classic newspaper story. Are they really that interested in reading about solutions? Do you think? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a good question, and it's 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 a it's a it's a kind of a problem because I think what I'm seeing in the solutions journalism world is that it's it's. Um, very popular in a certain strata of society, right? So, or in the niche that you write in. In the niche, yeah. Right. But then, but then, you know, in the policy circles, okay, there is some, you know, they're looking for something to put forward, a policy that may be helpful. So that that's that's great. In the foundation world, it's very popular to talk about those things. But is it getting the big, broad, popular audience? See, this is why I, I push back on you a little bit on the stories issue of of individuals, you know, because even though. You're trying to get systemic change. In order to get somebody hooked, you've got to have that face of that child. You have to have a story that, that the everyday citizen can relate to. And then they get sucked into the, you know, the solutions. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree. I mean, that's, you know, that was my story, right? That's how right? I, that was right? your that's story, too. That's how we too. started this conversation. Right. That's how we got sucked <laughs> in. And so I think, I think you know, again, I think that there is the opportunity, and we've done that. I mean, you know, I recently wrote a story about uh, predictive analytics that are being applied to... That's pretty wonky. That's pretty wonky. It's pretty wonky. Yeah, but okay. Yeah. You know, it's it's a pretty incredible idea. You're crunching uh, millions of birth records, tying them to administrative data from CPS, and you're seeing um, which children at birth are more likely to be maltreated. Okay, so how do you tell that story? So I tell a story of a girl who's in foster care who has a baby, yeah, yeah. and then that brings us in. But of course, we take them to this very very quickly. So so I guess the anecdote. I just don't. I just don't want to become over-reliant on it, where the anecdote is all we're giving them. We have to give them this broad context and this deep knowledge. Where do you think you've succeeded in terms of at least having some impact on policy? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just talk about um, you know, something that, that happened here at the school. Um, had a, in, in 2012, um, there was a law that was rolled out in California to extend foster care to age 21. Um, that, before it had just gone to 18 and then... Yeah, before 18 to, to age 21, the federal government in 2008 had offered federal monies to match. States around the country are slowly picking up on this. California, being the largest child welfare population in the country, uh, picked up. It was a big deal. 2010, the laws passed. Governor Schwarzenegger um, cuts a deal with Karen Bass, who was then the assembly pro tem, um, wherein, to save a little bit more money, they're going to... Uh, they're going to um, phase in the implementation. So the law goes into effect in 2012. Kids who are 18 in 2012 are eligible until their 19th birthday. So there's 2,088 children or kids, young people, who will turn 19 in 2012, who will thus be kicked out of the system and re-eligible in the following January. We heard about a a boy um, named David Colby, uh, slightly autistic, but got into Berkeley but he turned 19 three weeks before his graduation date. So he was a year back. So um, he was, Contra Costa County wanted to kick him out. I went down, I heard about that. I called up another reporter at the Contra Costa Times. We went down to the, we went down to the uh, courthouse. We tried to get in. They, they barred us from entry. We wrote a story. Uh, my students then started writing stories about these kids on this bubble. Um, soon, uh, the K- you know, KQED was picking it up and, and local outlets were picking it up. Um, I talked to the head of child welfare services in the state who said, you know, people in the building were really angry at you guys for writing all these things about AB 12, our big, you know, big popular policy that we work so hard on. Um, but, you know, when I walked into the governor's office, they had all these articles with them and they ended up finding the money to pay for pay for that bubble issue. It speaks volumes to how sensitive 
the political system is to printed articles about it. They, I mean, no matter where where it's specifically printed, once it's printed, it's promulgated. Even yeah. if it's beyond the subscription of that particular magazine, it goes online, it goes viral. It goes, believe me, it's on the desk of every one of those legislators. And, um, and it's just very powerful. Well, what I was intrigued by the way you told that story was, obviously one of the reasons to extend foster care from 18 to 21 is because these young people aren't fully developed by 18. Many of us are not fully developed ever, but nevertheless, <laughs> uh, certainly not an 18-year-old. And so the idea is to give them three extra years. But you actually didn't talk about that. You talked about a particular case of somebody who was going to be kicked out, which gets back to the governor's point about how it's really the individual cases which do a lot of the work here. And you didn't really talk about the reasons and the sort of wonky purpose for doing this. Yeah, I, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I mean, I think that uh, the I think that you're right. I think that the the individual story of David Colby made the whole thing fly. You know, the, the John Diaz of the Chronicle wouldn't have written about it if if there were no David Colby. Um, that so be- if you'd had a story that sort of said in a wonky fashion, gee, it's really important for people to have three more years to develop, and they being kicked out of the foster care system means they don't have that chance, and therefore that's really bad for them. I'm not sure that would have gotten very far. You may be, you may be right. I mean, I, I think there, was, there, were, there were plenty of those type of op-eds and different pieces mm-hmm. out there wherein you had a researcher uh, talking about, mm-hmm. well, the reason why you need it is for the, the plasticity of the brain and da-da-da-da-da. Right. But, but yes, I think that, that that set it off. So, so again, while I don't like to rely too heavily on that anecdote, we still rely on that. Well, but that, that gets at an important point that increasingly in public policy, we're coming to the realization that although we think our students and we do great research and we often have good ideas for how to solve problems like the plasticity of the brain and you've got to make sure you give people enough room to develop themselves and so forth. But it turns out we've got to maybe learn something from journalism about how you tell the story. And we're not always so good at that. Unfortunately, you have to go find an audience. I think it's, it's really lame in a sense, you know, that you have to essentially go out there and find people to, to read the research that's coming out. You need all these different vehicles. There's so much noise out there. How do you get it to all these places? But I think it's vitally important. I mean, I think that you know, the whole idea of solutions-based journalism, solutions are probably the most valuable information in the world. If you can find an answer, and that's all, all that's happening here at Goldman mm-hmm. every day. There's a lot of answers here. Getting those out there would do the world and getting a them lot of out good. there in an accessible way, so that people who are making policy, who not not in California so much, but in you know in Iowa and Georgia, who are you know who may be farmers, who may be small business people, who may not be so wonky, but getting out those 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 stories, the comparisons, the best practices, what's out there that works for them is a huge service. It's a you know it's a it's a gift to be able to tell to talk about and write about solutions in a way that captures the imagination of real people who might be making the rules. Yeah, yeah. I think we got, we got to get out there a little more. I'm hoping that with this massive open online course that we were yeah. lucky enough to develop here at Goldman. Right now, there's an opportunity for journalists to be so much more than just reporters. You will leave this online course with the skills to create solution-based journalism and drive public policy in any field you desire to affect. Our entry point will be the United States' response to a very vexing problem, child abuse and child maltreatment. Child maltreatment, everybody thinks it's like a niche thing. Uh, One in eight children by age 18 will have a substantiated 
allegation of child abuse or neglect, mm -hmm. meaning that a social worker walked into their house, one in eight children. So it's, uh, it's much bigger than, than we think it is. But um, so looking at that issue, how do you respond to mitigate and protect children? And then a bunch of lectures with different folks from Goldman, uh, from the journalism school, from social welfare, experts uh, talking about their research, their findings, and then some quick and dirty tools to tell good journalism. How important is it that you have this trio of places that you can work with, journalism, let's just talk about journalism and public policy, is that really an important piece of making this go for you? I mean, what does journalism not have that public policy offers and vice versa? I mean, I've found that the policy students are t typically not to not to be boastful, but they're the best. Um, so they, they typically can figure, I mean, journalism, my point is journalism is not that tough. I, I mean, it is tough to get on the phone, make calls, act like a reporter, but the, the skill level is not that, not that, not super high. Mm -hmm. So I think that, uh, I think that for the journalism students, I can tell you, um, and the social welfare students, I've got one social welfare student. She came, took the class here, a year later wrote a cover story on commercial sexual exploitation of children for the East Bay Express. She would have never pitched a media outlet unless she had come here and learned some journalism skills. So for her, like the public policy, she's got some, got some, got some journalism chops that they, they pull in. For the journalism students, the thing is they have some expertise. So for, for another example, one of our students went to go intern for the Seattle Times. The only story she got in the paper was about child welfare because she had some kind of knowledge on it. So uh, for, the, for the journalism students, I think it's really giving them content, a place to understand how public policy plays on the lives of children and families, how it works. Mm -hmm. um, and then for the policy students, how do you uh, get that information out there in a way that people want to read it? And how do you cut a lot of corners? I mean, reporting, calling up, dean of a policy school or governor, um, you can cut a lot of corners, figure out a lot of stuff a lot quicker than you can just reading. It's a great blend for pu public policy students to be able mm -hmm. to learn how to tell a story, how to do the research and get their answers in a, in a chunk that's bite-sized for, for, for consumption by everyday citizens is really a, a great uh, talent. So is this something, though, that works well in this sub-area because everybody cares about children and everybody thinks we've got to make sure their lives are better. Would it work in other areas or is there going to be problems? I want to ask both of you this. Or is there going to be problems with this approach to solutions-based journalism? Because unfortunately, so for example, if I'm writing about climate change and I'm arguing that, well, I really believe climate change is occurring and therefore my solution is limit CO2 in the atmosphere, I'm immediately on one side of the ideological divide right now. Right. So is it going to work there? Uh, you're on the side with 95% of the climate, climate scientists. So, I mean, and the same thing here, you know, child abuse is bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that you're, you're, on, the, you're on, on the side of the angels. I would imagine that in those kinds of situations that it's perfectly acceptable to be on one side of something. Now, there may be some, you know, policy areas that, where there's a gray area, but I don't think in those... Well, but I think there is a problem here today where we do... Speaking as a public policy dean, I see areas where I just simply don't believe that the policy debates are focused much on the evidence. And I think that means that sometimes something that is a solution is not accepted simply because people don't believe the evidence for either that as a solution or even for the problem. And therefore, how can we have any kind of discussion of a solution when people don't even believe there's a problem? Apart from climate, what do you mean? 
Well, I think in education, I think that there's a lot of debates about what the right way to think about education is. is it, the, the debate, my, my, my wife is a school teacher, and she always used to laugh at the debates over phonics over versus whole word comprehension of uh, whole sentence approaches to reading. She said, you know what? It depends on the kid. She says some kids learn it one way and some kids learn it the other way. And when you're teaching kids, you'll take any instrument you've got at hand to try to help that kid read, and you're not going to really get wound up in ideological distinctions. Well, I think, I think you're right. I think you're right. There, there, there's a very big potential problem. Maybe we're successful because we play, or I'm successful because I play in a small sandbox. That's, that could be totally true. Maybe this is not transportable to other fields. Could be totally true. But I think that the problem, what you're saying, is not uh, just not a. It's about finding a solution and describing it in a way that the evidence takes precedent. And I think if what we were doing with journalism for social change were applied to every journalism and public policy school across the country, and you had all these folks running around knowing to match the best available solutions with the, with problems, you'd have a chance at more evidence rising to the top. There are enough big problems out there that we want solved that you need, a, you need to have somebody evaluate what those solutions are and present them in a way that is cohesive. Like we all agree that we think there should be a reduction in crime. Which way is the best way to go about it? As somebody who is an expert in cr- writing about crime and solutions would be a person to do that. We all agree that we want to increase child literacy. An expert in that could present the solutions and the data behind them so that those who are implementing can make the best decisions. I think that you can, you can do that with any spate of big problems like you're talking about. I, I think, and I think that the, the one thing that is possibly different and hopeful is that if you have this fourth estate that is really invested in the solutions, it, as opposed to somebody who just gets passionate to a certain degree, I, I, may, you know, I may make myself extinct because I have some kind of passion. You know, that's a problem. But, um, it's a good thing. Is, <laughs> it is a good but, thing. But, the, but if you have a whole class of journalists um, who come out thinking that their role is to really explain evidence in public policy solutions, um, then when you have those uh, people that are such great advocates, we've got a lot of them here at the Goldman School who can really tell the story um, their message will be amplified because they can't do it all. I mean, you know, they have to focus. Fi- they need, there needs to be the researchers focusing on this. There needs to be the policy advocates focusing on the policy advocacy. And there needs to be the journalists who can look at all that stuff, connect the dots, mm-hmm. and, and provide the evidence that, that will get through to, these, to the public, which is unfortunately cast as a bunch of buffoons, which is not true, I don't think, um, so that they can become more active. So, Governor, are you convinced? Yeah, I am. I think it's, it would be great. It's a great service. I, you know, I, I think that getting somebody who is smart to lead us to, um, to adopt a solution because it makes, cause it's the best solution is important. I would hate to see three solutions mm. offered and there be a false equivalency among them. I would want to hear from those who are expert about which one is most likely to succeed and why. You're totally right. Yeah. So my final question you just had a child five days ago. How does oh, that change your perspective? You. Congratulations. Oh, How does that change your perspective? Well, maybe I'm just sleep deprived or I just become... <laughs> um, I think, I think uh, as I drove over here, I thought about what's going on for kids. And I, uh, and I think it just intensifies my uh, ferocity and I'm sure. caring. So I, I, hopefully it sends me on, a, on a, an intensified track. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thanks, Dean.